Recovery Elevator, episode 204. I learned a huge amount in my relapse. I learned that I cannot moderate, for starters. I learned, you know, what happens, uh, that I will always slide back. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, I had a wonderful conversation with Lucy. On January 1st of this year, I launched the third private unsearchable Facebook accountability group. All signups starting January 1st to January 31st will be placed in this new Cafe RE group and you'll have access to the forum, which is located outside of Facebook as well. We've already got several members in the group who are moving forward in life without alcohol. If you're needing extra accountability and support, also the feeling of, I'm not the only one going through this, then Cafe RE is for you. This group will be capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy, and there's so much love and encouragement in these groups. For the entire month of January, you can use the promo code 2019-2019 for 75% off registration. Again, that code is 2019, and then it's just $19 a month after that. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I got a question from a listener via email saying, do I have to avoid social events where alcohol will be present when I get sober? Great question. Well, the answer is yes, then no, then yes. We'll explore this yes, then no, then yes on the timeline in sobriety. But first, let's take a look at what's not realistic. That would be avoiding alcohol altogether. To do a clean, thorough sweep of alcohol in one's life, they would need to do the following. Delete Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, especially Snapchat, and basically all social media. One would then need to only watch PBS. Wait, that's not even safe. So essentially avoid all film and TV. Then one would need to install locks on the inside of the doors and then flush the keys down the toilet. Avoiding alcohol altogether is impossible. We have to have an acceptance of what we can and cannot control when it comes to exposure to alcohol. What we can control is the situations we put ourselves in, and that's what I want to talk about in this episode today. So when I say yes, you should avoid social situations, I'm referring to the first three to six months of sobriety. You're going to do your best to mitigate your encounters with alcohol, especially situations where you know it's going to be offered to you. You're going to want to place as much time as possible from your last drink, and this is easier when you're not in the lion's den. Dedicate some time and perform a mental scan of all the social events you have in the future. I guarantee you, there are some sneaky scenarios like that 10K on Sunday morning that might catch you by surprise. You want to play this time frame safe. Sure, you may be missing out on some fun events, but we're going to be doing something different that we didn't do before. We're no longer leveraging the future for present moment gain. This is what we did when we were drinking. So stay in a couple Saturday nights and watch your favorite movie. For a short while, you may be accompanied by anxiety, depression, loneliness, and fatigue. But within time, those unwanted guests will stop showing up. By skipping these social events in the first three to six months, we are endowing our future with more energy, vitality, and joy. We are putting happiness in the piggy bank of life, which we haven't done in a long time. If you find yourself getting down that you're missing your friend Michelle's bachelorette party, ask yourself what would really be happening if you were there and you were drinking. Would you be having just a couple? Would you be going drink for drink with everyone else, or would you be lapping the pace car? So in the first 30, 60, 90 days, yes, do your best to avoid these situations, especially the big ones like weddings, bachelorette parties, bachelor parties, etc. But if you do go, promise me one thing. No, seriously, 
promise this podcast host that you will place a call, send a text or email to someone you are close to that will be attending this event and you'll tell them that you won't be drinking. Now I need a second promise out of you. In that text call or email, don't tell them that you won't be drinking because of a cleansed diet or you're on medication or you're training for a marathon, etc. But tell them that you've arrived at the conclusion in your life that alcohol is no longer serving you any good. And you would also like their support in this decision. Okay, now to cement this promise, we are going to go ahead and do a virtual pinky promise. Ready, go. After you've got three to six months of sobriety under your belt, you have more sturdy footing. Should you still avoid these social situations? My answer is no. You still need to be smart about this. For example, if you're attending a party themed after the 2006 movie Beer Fest, go ahead and sit that one out. But there comes a time when we need to start rewiring the brain and building those emotional sobriety muscles. I recommend we start small. Maybe book club, a small gathering of friends. Every time we attend an event with alcohol and we don't drink, we begin to lift the needle of the record off those deepened grooves in the brain and start to create a new narrative. It's important not to punish yourself in these events. You don't have to stay till the very end of the event if you don't feel like it. If you just logged an hour at your buddy's Kentucky Derby party, nice job. Get the hell out of there. Slowly, your level of comfort in those situations will rise and you'll be able to stay longer and longer. I've spoken with people who have done this in a strategic fashion. In fact, I met a guy once who went by himself to his favorite bar for 10 minutes. A couple days later, he went for 15, then 20, all the while drinking soda water. Soda water with a splash of crayon and a lime. He built back those emotional sobriety muscles strategically, very slowly. Okay, now let's build on the promises you made earlier. Promise me that in all these social situations you attend, at least one person will know your goal not to drink. We've already covered that. The next promise that I want is for you to do your best to attend with a sober friend. First off, you'll have some great laughs watching drunk people be total idiots. But more importantly, you'll be able to hold each other accountable. I went to a bachelor party in early December with my best sober friend named Dusty. When I first heard about this trip, I called up Dusty and said, you going? He said, if you're going, then we both went. In the initial question, I say, yes, you should avoid these dicey situations. Then no, then yes again. Let's explore this third yes. There will come a time when you'll find yourself in the wrong room. This is a good thing, but at first it can be uncomfortable and lonely. There comes a time when you've outgrown these situations. I'm not using the word outgrow to trick the unconscious mind or spin the situation in my favor, but that's exactly what has happened. There will come a time where, yes, you can be around your friends at a bachelor party who get wasted and throw up their $45 steaks. This happened to three people at the bachelor party that I attended in Dallas, and you might even have a good time. However, there will be this tug at the heart and soul level that says, I need more. This doesn't do it for me. I'm not fulfilled by this anymore. This is a beautiful time in your journey, but it can also feel lonely. But it's important you recognize this is an opportunity. It's time to embrace your new tribe or find a new tribe. This tribe doesn't have to be fully comprised of people who don't drink, but people who prioritize the conversations, camping, the hiking, the traveling, the snorkeling, the running, and not the drinking. Listen to the body. It's going to tell you who to spend time with and what to do. After the interview, I'm going to talk a little more about my experience with this. And before we hear from Lucy, let's hear from today's sponsor, Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. 
Robinhood has a simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy to digest way. Guys, I've been using this app for about two months now, and it is super easy to use. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and keep all your profits. With the Robinhood app, you can learn by doing. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks and track favorite companies with your personalized news feed. You can get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And right now, Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at elevator.robinhood.com. That's elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, dot robinhood.com. And now let's hear from Lucy. Lucy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining. Lucy, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? 65 days today. 65 days. Congratulations. And I just asked you before recording the date. That was October 15th, 2018, correct? That's it, yeah. Yeah, congratulations. How's it feel? It feels really good. Yeah, feels really great. It's not my first time sober, but it's I have never felt this good in my sobriety. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great to hear. I'm excited to dive in how you had, you've had a year or so of sobriety before. You thought you Mm. mastered moderation. You tried AA, but it didn't (laughs) resonate. And you thought alcohol was taking you out of your shell, but it was actually keeping you in it. So I'm excited to chat about all this stuff. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age. Do you have a family? And most importantly, Lucy, what do you like to do for fun? Well, I'm from a a town called Manchester originally in the north of England, but I moved to London about 10 years ago um, where I live now in the north of London. And yeah, I'm a makeup artist freelance makeup artist um fun i well i i'm one of those lucky people who kind of turn my hobby into my job so my job is a lot of fun but yeah i love exploring london um and traveling in general um i don't have a family i am single but i am obsessed with my nephews and my niece <laughs> that they're, they're like six five and two so they live up in manchester so I like to go and visit them as often as I can for fun. Um, all sorts. I've rediscovered drawing recently. That's my new hobby. I love walking, hiking, all sorts, cooking. There we yeah. go. And when you said a makeup artist and you just said you've rediscovered drawing or you've discovered drawing, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I went on a couple of dates with a makeup artist a couple of years ago and I had no idea what it entailed. Basically, the face is your canvas and it is it is pure art. Am I wrong on that? No, you're not wrong on that. I mean, there's various different types of makeup. But yeah, I mean, I guess we're called a makeup artist for a reason. So I certainly began from an art background. Yeah, the drawing, I'm I'm doing life drawing, actually. Um, I mean, I guess we'll cover this later, but I'm finding that I am much more excited to do and try things that once fell by the wayside or things I've never tried before in my sobriety. So that's yeah like an old hobby that I've gone back to and I'm, I'm loving it yeah. I'm very relaxing and satisfying welcome yeah. back life I like it yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll give right. listeners a little background about your drinking describe your drinking habits how much you drank did you ever attempt to regulate perhaps when you started <laughs> drinking and when did you first realize that uh-oh alcohol might not be doing good in my life right well once upon a time yeah I I started fairly early. I don't know what counts as early for anyone, but I was around 12 or 13 when me and my friends, you know, if a, 
whether it was a sleepover or something. We were kind of the naughty, rebellious girls, I guess. And um, we would steal a bottle of booze. I remember I first got drunk on Cinzano. I don't even know to this day what that is. <laughs> do I. It's hard, no, to, get, hard to get one past this guy. Never heard of it. I know it tasted disgusting, so I can say that for it. But, yeah, we there was no social element to our drinking in terms of, you know, sitting around sort of uh, with a fine wine. It was get some hard spirits and neck them as quickly as we can to get drunk. And, yeah, we were just a bunch of tearaways, really, and started going to nightclubs very early and um, staying out all night and all sorts. But um, I think, yeah, we... we I went quite hard into the booze straight away. Um, I've never really thought about why or I don't know whether I was just predisposed to it. Who knows? But my friends were all kind of the same. So, yeah. And then I actually, for a while, I started to take drugs in my teens from about 14 or 15. um, And for a while, I preferred that over alcohol. Hmm. Uh, So I obviously wasn't too attached at that point. But I think it it really kicked into full swing when I was about 18 and obviously that's the drinking age in the UK so you can work in bars and nightclubs and that's an easy place to work so I started that and obviously you're surrounded by drunk people but also after the club or the bar shuts everyone sits around and drinks together and the drink is free and yeah I think it was a very quick sort of descent for me into you know, copious amounts of binge drinking. It just became a daily occurrence, I suppose. Um, yeah, very quickly, yeah, I discovered I had kind of no off switch. Um, and yeah, whilst I guess the partying began with other people, after a few years, I know that, say, if there was no party, I would kind of make a party by myself. Or if, you know, everyone else went home, I would I would go and get some alcohol, take it home by myself. But I think around the age of 21, I was buying like a full-size bottle of brandy from the shop to sit in the house and drink by myself. Um, Or I could drink three bottles of wine in a night and want more. And it's funny how I think when at that time, I must have known that that, you know, objectively to think about taking in that much alcohol alone at home sounds insane but it you just make excuses don't you for yourself at the time I, I just felt like well this is what I wanted to do I enjoyed drinking the alcohol so so yeah I kind of as my life completely unraveled I was just continuing to do that but I you know I lost every job I ever had every bar job I was ever in I just wouldn't turn up hungover and would just get another job but and so this is in your mid to early 20s it says you lost yeah. every job had to take out loans to pay for alcohol had to claim bankruptcy and yeah i went got... bankrupt sorry okay. yeah oh yeah and, and it says you repeatedly got in a dangerous situation self-harm and, and drunk repeatedly uh yeah and so this is mid-20s yeah early early 20s yeah i repeatedly um i had a habit of sort of if i got left alone when i was drunk that was yeah I would self-harm or I would I took overdoses numerous times and that's something that I would never do when I was sober you know the two sides of me were just so polar opposite but I was so drunk so often that that side of me just came out and I think the self-harm was it was a cry for help for the drinking I think in retrospect but yeah I just 
I I feel like I had kind of no direction at that point as well. Um, I actually did very well at school, but I, as a creative person, I wanted to be creative and finding a creative job that you can earn a living in is not easy. And I think I just felt kind of aimless for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I even remember I, I got a job um, in a restaurant as an assistant manager. God knows how I got that job. <laughs> but um <laughs> But that meant, you know, I had the keys to the restaurant. So I would go out drinking with my friends and then take them all back to this bar, open the bar in the middle of the night. And one night I took back like 10 skateboarders. Hmm. You know skateboarders, but they're quite a gnarly bunch. And uh, yeah, they essentially trashed the place. And I just didn't know what to do. I was too drunk to deal with it. So I just left and locked the door. And so I got fired from that job as well. Um but I mean, just that kind of behavior, when I think about it now, it's just like, it was so nihilistic, but I just, I didn't know what else to do. Yeah, there was so many elements of, of that. Yeah. I started to get panic attacks as well. And So at, at 26, it says you tried AA, but it didn't seem to resonate. Tell us more about that period of your life. Yeah, well, that was, so I'd moved to London to become a freelancer in, in makeup. I'd started my makeup career at that point, and I... Uh, the partying kind of continued when I when I came to London but what I realized at that point was that I was you know I was doing jobs where if I lost those jobs the one career that I'd had would have kind of gone down the pan so that was my first wake up to if I don't stop this I'm going to lose everything so I took my first venture into sobriety and yeah I was 26 so that's 10 years ago like there just wasn't the resources that there are now and so I did I went to AA just a local meeting and I know that it's so helpful to so many people but it just didn't resonate with me at all I the religious side of it I struggled with because I'm quite a sort of staunch atheist um and just I know as well that people talk about different meetings for different people and you you need to find your fit I was very much against it for a long time I think now I'm more open to it I've heard People kind of do their own take on AA, don't they, to a degree. But I mean, now I've found other tools, which I find for me are much more, much more helpful. But yeah, um, you're definitely not the first one to come on the podcast and say it didn't resonate. In fact, in my yeah. first, my first meeting, my first 20 meetings, it didn't resonate at all. So that's definitely not the norm. Oh, your uh, first 20? Or, but you it definitely out. is the norm. Sorry, that definitely is the norm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, in fact, the first AA meeting I went to, I came out with the, I'd been sober for two and a half years, almost two and a half years. And I went to a meeting, and I, it, was a, it was a first step meeting, and I just heard drunkalog after drunkalog. I was like, wait a second, I haven't had, I haven't had DUI, multiple DUIs, divorces, bankruptcy. And I actually was like, I'm not an alcoholic, and I drank two days later. So it's, it's kind of a time, timeline in our journey that we're ready to embrace AA if we do it or not. And it's, and it's not for yeah. everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I think, yeah, it, perhaps it just wasn't the meeting for me. It was quite a dour one as well. You know, it was a very, it was the, the cliche, the dark church basement, the people who've lost everything kind of, it just, it just didn't resonate with me. But perhaps I would have had more luck if I'd stuck with it. But instead, I did the kind of white knuckling, you know, alcohol diet, like, yeah. <laughs> so going to the same places with the same people didn't change any mindset or anything. And I was, you know, going to parties and hating every second of it. And so, yeah, after a year and a, a year and a half, I went back to drinking. You know, within a year, well, within six months, really, of that, I was straight back to where I'd started. 
obviously started out moderating a glass of champagne on my birthday. But yeah, and then in the end there, I think I still think of this as my rock bottom, to be honest, even though it was, even though I've been back to drinking since. I had a, a, a suicide attempt one night where, again, probably more of a cry for help, called my parents, who obviously are in Manchester, which is hundreds of miles away. Uh, so they were terrified. They called an ambulance. I got taken to hospital. Um, and my dad got on a train from Manchester and came down. And I was in the hospital, basically just acting like a complete lunatic, being held down by, you know, four people. And I, I still have a, a vision in my head of my dad's face hmm. and what that was doing to him. And that was, you know, that was my my second journey into sobriety. It started there. They tried to section me and just, you know, being with my dad and knowing how much he, he loved me. And, you know, even since I've spoken to him about it recently and I can apologize to my dad till I'm blue in the face and he's incredibly sweet about it. But I will sort of never forgive myself for, for what I put them through in terms of that. So, yeah, so, I mean, you know, there's not much choice really once you're in that, you know, if that's not a rock bottom for a heck of a lot of people, I don't know what is. So, yeah, I went back to not drinking, but it was exactly the same. I had no real approach. I remember I used to be really angry at drinkers in my second go at sobriety. Mm -hmm. Just like I would, people would tell their drunken stories and be laughing about them and I would just be seething like... <laughs> Yeah. Jealous. And Lucy, how old were you at this time with your second? Yeah, the second time, well, I must have been probably 30, just about to turn 30 then. Okay. Um, what you explain about being angry is, is I had the same thing. The first, mm -hmm. my first sobriety attempt, just white knuckling the whole thing. And mm -hmm. I found resentments building towards drinkers. I hear stories and I tell yeah. myself, like, oh, I don't need it. I'm good. But then these resentments would build out of jealousy and why can't I freaking drink? And then a matter of time I drank again. Um, so tell us about yeah. how this the second phase in sobriety and how it morphed into, is this perhaps your third phase that you're in now? Is that what you're saying? I am in my third phase now. Okay. Yeah. And I, and uh, I had like hundreds of phases, so there's no, yeah. I mean, it's funny when in the past, when I thought about it and when I first came back to sobriety, this current time, I'd always thought of it as, Oh, I've had two periods of not drinking before. But actually now I kind of see it all as one journey because I've learned a lot in the various stages. I've learned a lot in the relapses and I've learned a lot in the periods of sobriety about what to do and what not to do. And actually I kind of, you know, when I was 24, I picked up my first Tony Robbins book and that gave me the first seeds of the idea that I might be able to change something. And so I think, well, maybe my sobriety journey started there, you know, or maybe it started the two years before that, the first time I tried to go out and not drink, even though I failed. So like, yeah, I, I know we count days and we, you know, look at relapses and so on, but I definitely feel like this is a, a journey that I'm on that it's kind of been up and down, not linear. I, I, I get a comment on that real quick. I, I oh. have, I think all this might sound strange for me to say, but I think my relapses were just important as the amount of time sober that I logged because they were so critical for me to learning those lessons and if, yeah. if you decide to quit sober and you're sober since fantastic more power to you but that's not yeah. the current trajectory that i've that i've experienced when interviewing people and with myself but every mm -hmm. relapse every rock bottom moment was essential to my to put me to where i'm at now absolutely 100 percent. it's not like i would ever go out there and recommend a relapse to anyone <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> but 100 percent. i agree with you completely i learned a huge amount in my relapse i learned that i cannot moderate for starters 
I learned, you know, what happens uh, that, that I will always slide back. There was something I was, I was talking about in, um, in Cafe RE the other day, and I wish I could remember the source for this analogy, but that someone spoke about how kind of going into sobriety from a drinking problem is kind of like waking up in a burning house. Your house is burning down around you and, and you wake up and that's your sobriety. And if you go back to drinking, it's kind of like trying to go back to sleep in a burning house, like you just can't do it. And what that meant for me was that even though I went back to drinking, I never got back that kind of free and easy drunkenness that I would see in my friends, you know, and I was always conscious of, it was like there was a sober voice in the back of my head judging me every time I was drunk, you know, and the fun wasn't there so much. It was just feeding the urge. So yeah, the drink, the, I never, I don't think I would ever be able to go back to drinking in a happy, free and easy way. I judged myself horrifically every time. Yeah, I love um, that analogy because they're, uh, this, this podcast will ruin drinking for a lot of people. I apologize. <laughs> it will. And what that means is once the journey starts, it's irreversible. You can't unlearn yeah. this stuff. Right. The unconscious brain, you're very slowly planting the seeds at the unconscious level, which takes time to do. And eventually you reach a tipping point where you can't go back. And then there's this weird perilous time where you're stuck in the middle and that's fine. Yeah. I went through it. Lucy, you've gone through it. We're kind of in that moment in your journey right now, but then everybody, mm. the majority people that I've talked to, they come out the other side um, yeah. and talk to us about how you came out the other side. When you reached that tipping point, when you mentioned your entire mindset has changed, um, you yeah. thought alcohol brought you out of your shell, but when you finally realized it was the alcohol that was keeping you in it the whole time. Yeah, I mean, well, I, yeah, so my last relapse, obviously six years, I'm not even sure if you can call that a relapse at that point, but the moderation element of that slowly descended over about three years. And the last three years of my drinking were, I never went back to the depths that I was before, all of those horrible things I was talking about. Those, those never happened again because I was existing on pure fear of that ever happening. Um, but I certainly went back to blackouts, drinking alone, uh, crazy behavior, embarrassing myself and so on. And I think I started to get those niggles that I can't drink, I shouldn't be doing this, you know, but, but I didn't want to go back to being sober. I'd convinced myself that I would only have like cured my drinking problem if I could moderate because I felt like avoiding alcohol was avoiding the problem. A stupid way of thinking about it but that was my logic at the time so I was like I have to learn to moderate because that's when I will have fixed this and the fact that I knew that I wasn't doing that just meant I knew that I had failed yet again but I yeah I I had a lot of weddings in and sort of we call them Hindus. I think you call them bachelorette parties like a lot mm -hmm. of parties yeah over a few months and um, I actually found that I know you talk a lot about you know, what, what people do to try and trick themselves out drinking too much, whether they go from like beer to spirits or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, doing things like... Maybe not I in that a, order, but... <laughs> well, yeah, well, I don't know. I, don't, I never did that. I never tried to switch okay. on to the other. Usually, usually, goes, usually goes from hard alcohol to beer, but I don't know. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you might be an alcoholic if you trick yourself from going beer straight to the handles of hard alcohol. Yeah, let's get this. Let's get this over with fast. You know, yeah, I played the tape forward enough to know that. Let's just get this over with. Yes. All right. Sorry. Yeah, 
No, I, I mean, yeah, so clearly I never tried that one because if I had, it wouldn't have gone very well. But I certainly, I never did shots. I had, that was a rule of mine. No shots because that gets your blood alcohol up too fast. I had three blood alcohol calculators on my phone that I used. <laughs> you might be <laughs> an so alcoholic. Yeah. You're laughing at that so much because I thought that was so clever at the time. Like I was like, I've, I've smashed this. Like I'm, I know exactly at what point my blood alcohol level is going to tip into a blackout. And that's where I'm going to stop drinking. But I know that after those those weddings and all of those parties, in the end, I had a, a dreadful walk of shame after waking up in a stranger's bed, missing half my clothes, which was a favourite thing to do when I was very drunk. And then followed by a four-day hangover, which is the worst I have ever had. I thought it was going to go on forever and ever. And I think after that, I was just like, it felt like something had changed. Like I was just like, I don't want to do this. Oh, I know what my point was. It was when I was talking about my techniques. Another of my techniques was just to kind of avoid going out as much as possible because I knew that if I went out, I would get really drunk. Mm -hmm. But when I had all of these weddings and so on, I couldn't avoid it. So I got really drunk way more times than I normally would these days in quick succession. And so that kind of hammered home to me because every time I blacked out and yeah, after that wedding, which was around 15 days before my final drink, I had a few drinks. I had one beer here, one beer there. My very last drink was three beers at home, which gave me a cracking headache for some reason. And after that, I think the next day, I bought a book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober by Catherine Gray. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that book, but I actually don't think it's out in the States yet. It's or maybe it's just come out. It has um, been recommended for our book club. I'm familiar with the title. Yeah, it's out here for some reason. It's certainly out here on Kindle. I think she's an English writer. I don't know. Maybe there's something to do with that. But um, it's very similar in its tone and content to This Naked Mind. Mm -hmm. They're both the same kind of book. And that is the sort of thing that I'm talking about in terms of resources for sobriety that 10 years ago where I say it was AA or nothing. I can't I cannot believe how many resources there are now I mean I can believe it and it's fantastic but it's completely different the landscape for recovery has just completely changed and I used to feel very alone in mine you know it felt like the people who had drinking problems were the cliche the living under a bridge the you know like two weeks of beard growth like crying in a church cell or whatever <laughs> that you know and but now there are people who I relate to they're like me you know there are young women who dress like me and talk like me and and drank like me who are sober and who don't necessarily go to AA some of them do some don't but who I can I resonate with you know like I said I didn't resonate with AA I resonate with these people and there are websites like hip sobriety and then and then I got into podcasts. I read This Naked Mind and then I found a home podcast and, and then I found Recovery Elevator. And it's just like the whole thing is just blown wide open. And after reading those two books, being in the frame of mind I was in, having the prior experience of sobriety and of drinking, it all just kind of mashed together into this amazing <laughs> amalgam of, you know, happy sobriety. And I know people talk about the pink cloud and, you know, and I'm only two months in, but I know that in the first two months, the last two times, I didn't feel or think the way I do now. And, yeah, when I was saying, you know, that 
I didn't realize that alcohol had shrunk my life down at all. Um, I didn't really realize it made that much difference in my life at all, apart from in the moments when I was drunk. But actually now I, not only do I not have to deal with hangovers, but like I was saying that one of my techniques for, um, you know, controlling my drinking was to just try and accept as few social invites as possible Mm -hmm. because I knew that that would lead to drinking. Obviously now I don't have to do that. You know, I wouldn't go out the night before work because I knew that I would be too hungover to go in. Now that doesn't matter. I can do that. You know, I went to see Lauren Hill the other night and I was out till one in the morning. And then, but it was, and it was incredible. And I was completely sober and I've rediscovered how to have fun when I'm sober. I realized that the things, you know, the first couple of times round, I would go to parties, go to clubs and have a horrible time and think I'm having a horrible time because I'm not drunk. Actually, I was having a horrible time because I was having a horrible time. (laughs) If you go to something that's not fun, where you would have normally drunk to make it fun, it's just just a thing that's not fun. Like if you go to something that's really good fun, it's fun regardless. You don't need alcohol, and and that's a great litmus test. Yeah, I love the way how you just said that, yeah. I went to, we have this great night in London called Ultimate Power, which is power ballads all night long. Oh, yes. Uh, Meatloaf, Celine Dion, Europe, like, (laughs) journey. Yeah. It's incredible. I was there till 3 a.m., screaming my head off to these songs, had a couple of Diet Cokes. That was it, you know? And and I can dance because I like the music. And so I had two nights out like that in early sobriety. I know... Sometimes we, we say to people, like, you know, try and avoid those situations in early sobriety. And I think it's different for everybody. But, like, if somebody said to me, oh, do you want to come and meet me and sit in a bar? I would probably say no, because that's not fun for me now. But I will constantly invite other people to do things that are fun, where there's something to do, whether that's eating, whether it's going to a market, going to a gig, you know, all of those things are incredible fun. And you don't need any alcohol to do that. So that's, and then, yeah, taking up hobbies, you know, what am I going to do now? I've got all this extra money and this extra time. So, yeah, and that's, it has, it's just blown my world wide open. Instead of just being the same life, but without alcohol, it's almost like a whole new world. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it genuinely feels that way. Yeah. And I want to comment what you said earlier. You said from 26 to 36, you feel like it's a whole new world of recovery, which it is. There's a, there's a curve that is happening fast. And I feel like even yes. in the next 10 years, the yes. landscape of how we treat addiction is going to change even more dramatically. And I've got a plan. I haven't quite announced it yet because I'm still formulating it in my, in my small brain. Um, it's like a five to 10 year plan. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about where it's going to go and, and all aspects right. of it, programs. I don't think AA is ever going to become obsolete. It doesn't need to. It's a great program. It laid a, a tremendous pathway, the foundation for us. But what is to come in the next 10 years is I'm excited for it. And yeah. Yeah, and have you had any, any experience, any challenges, any cravings in your first 65 days of sobriety? Only a few. I One of my biggest cravings, I think, was I went to a Christmas market and there was – all of these, you know, if, if anything makes drinking look tempting and sweet and adorable, it's it's a Christmas market with mulled wine and German beer tents. And um, and I and I had a little feeling of like, oh, you know, I wish I could 
and it was a, it was definitely a craving. It was that kind of pit of your stomach itch. But my favourite technique that worked. That's not the only craving. I've had I've had other ones too. But that was my first real like grit your teeth craving. Mm-hmm. And I used a technique which I'd heard of. You can barely even call it a technique, really. It's really simple and obvious, really. But it's just fast-forwarding to where that's going to lead. So instead of glamorizing, it's very easy to glamorize uh, and romanticize the first one, two, three drinks, where you look at those people in the bars and they're all smiling and giggling and so on. But I'm pretty sure that nobody ever glamorized the last three drinks of the night for people like me, you know, the face down in your own vomit whatever like that's not no um, Ah. that's not something to you know to romanticize and and I just always do that when and it's kind of funny because you know after that Christmas market two three hours later after I'd eaten myself stupid with mince pies and stuff and had a lovely time I got on the tube to go home in London and within that three hours you know the London the people of London had started to get very drunk and you would see people stumbling upstairs and falling over, like, you know, people who were kind of bickering and fighting in the street. Like, just, you started to see the next stage of that part that we romanticise. And I just, yeah, that's what I do now. Every time I see a drink and I crave it, or I have that thought, I just fast forward in my head. Oh, yeah, that's that's what that drink means. It doesn't mean giggly, happy, glamour. It means you know, nightmarish hangovers and, you know, this, that and the other and regret. <laughs> so it's very simple, but that seems to be working for me. So yeah, simple, know. but effective. Simple, but effective. Simple, exactly. but effective. And overall, I love what you said earlier, says it's not like, how did you say it? It's not a different, it's a different, it's not a different life without alcohol. It's almost like, it's like, it's like a new life where alcohol is not needed. And it yeah. sounds like you're feeling that, you're viscerally feeling that, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, people fear change, don't they? Hugely. Fact. People do. And uh, we all do. And uh, I think if you sat and said to somebody, right, so all you've got to do is like change your whole life, you know, get rid of all your friends, don't go to the same places. Like, you know, no one wants to do that. Nobody knows how to begin to do that. Um, and I definitely, again, this is a, a point where I think the past experiences of sobriety can be very helpful. But, you know, like I say, I don't want people to go relapsing. So maybe just take our word for it. But that, yeah, that I, I realized that in those times when I went to the same places with the same people and all of those people, all of those were experiences in which I felt I needed alcohol to have fun. If you take the alcohol out, you're not going to have fun. So you do need to open yourself up to new experiences and you may not enjoy every new experience you might go to you don't have to you know have a bloody amazing time at every time you try and go out I've had you know I had a work Christmas do that I had to go to and it was all right I kind of white knuckled through that for two hours because standing in a bar talking with a drink in your hand to people you don't know that well that's not great fun but I had that realization that this isn't fun because it's not fun. You know, I have to go and do this and that's okay. And I didn't go home feeling sad that I hadn't had fun because I hadn't drunk. I just knew that, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't for me kind of thing. But like, so yeah, you may not enjoy every new thing that you try, but there is a a whole world of 
wonderful things that we all enjoy things you've tried before things you've never tried um there is a there is a party and a, or a club that i'm pretty sure that every single person on this planet can go to that they will enjoy if it's the right thing for them so it's just about finding finding your right thing you know uh, lucy and, I mean, and here's the cool thing what you just mentioned there's a club a bar for everybody maybe not a bar but there are no, there are sober bars and sober clubs opening up in larger yeah. markets, and I've even had yeah. people send me links of a uh, of, of a sober bar or I forget how it's called, but even like smaller towns opening up across America. This is this is a trend that is mm. that is catching steam. It's it's pretty neat yeah. to see happen. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Or um, another thing is meetups. I don't know if you have the meetup website in mm -hmm. the states, but yeah. we have it here, and um, that yeah, it's like sober people getting together to go and do interesting things. I've got two things in the diary in London in um, in January. One is like a, a really cool street food market thing that we have here. I'm going to go and do that with them. So yeah, there's a there's a million things. And I just think like, you know, if, if there are people who, it can sort of seem like, oh, that's easy for you to say, but like that, I, I don't know that my life is different somehow to somebody else's, but like every sober person in like Cafe RE, you know, I love Cafe RE. Like I, I, I cannot thank you enough for starting that. That has been probably We're glad like, to have you, Lucy. Oh my God. It's like, it's changed, changed everything. Like if you want to, anyone who feels like they, like I never understood before what people meant when they said that you need to find your sober, your tribe and that you can't do this alone and so on. Because I was like, I don't really have any sober friends and like, yeah, I'm going to go on these meetups, but I hadn't been yet. And I tried some forums, but I wasn't really like connecting to anyone really. And then I joined Cafe RE and it was just like a big like slap of love, like right in the face. <laughs> One way to say it. But it was immediate and just like it was surprising, you know, And but I felt so supported and immediately and so accepted and just like, and now I get it. I'm like, oh, wow, like that is what people mean. You know, even when I'm not, actively in the group I feel like I have them in my pocket like all the time you know if there's ever anything that I'm feeling I feel like I can just say it to them yeah there. but and that's how that's how it's supposed to work inspiring. yeah there's so many inspiring people in there and that all of those people who are sober I'm pretty sure every single one of us had the thought numerous times I can't do that like I'm not I can't get sober like that like oh yeah you know not going to work for my life and none of us are special like we're not we don't have some superhuman willpower like so i i tried so many times to stop drinking and you know and and failed over and over again and but now here i am and it's just a question of yeah you know finding the right resources and support which thankfully now thanks to things like recovery elevator and so on they're, they're out there they're easy to find so yeah i think it's, you know, everyone's sobriety is different. Everyone's tools are different. We always talk about our toolbox. But, yeah, finding those fun things to do sober, they are that's the most life-affirming thing ever when you go out and you come home with a big smile on your face. And Yeah, and Lucy, I got, I got a comment on what you said about the meetup groups before we hit the rapid fire round. And so mm. I actually started, a, uh, it's called Sober Sexy Group on meetups.com for Bose, Montana. Um, we've done a couple of events, which is pretty cool, but a yeah. lot of, so and it's kind of something on the back burner. I don't really have too much time to dedicate it to it, but there's like uh -huh. 150 members and it's a small town in Bozeman. And I'm looking at the members. I'm like, that person's not sober, not sober, not sober. 
not sober. I mean, they're not like, you're not alcoholic or trying to get sober. They're just normal drinkers. And I reached out to a couple of them individually. I said, Hey, thanks for joining the sober group. Are you trying to quit drinking? And the majority of their responses, actually almost everybody was no, alcohol is not problematic in my life, but I'm looking for an environment where the focus is not to get drunk. <laughs> and and right. there, there, there's a big demand for that on the face of the planet for people to be in an environment where there's authentic connection, altruistic relationships are being built, and it's not yeah. revolved, revolved on alcohol. I found that very promising, and it, it was neat. It was neat. That's really interesting. And also kind of very interesting in this age of like social media as well, where a lot of connections are very kind of inauthentic and not in the flesh. I mean, what a wonderful time to be sober and to remind ourselves of real connection, I guess. With yeah. People. Actually, one question before we hit the rapid fire round. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Lucy? Not drinking is my plan. Good one. And then, I think uh, staying connected. <laughs> yeah. Staying connected to people, I think, every day. Um, sort of put, putting my sobriety first, I guess. But it's, um, again, I used to hear people say that and think it meant, you know, that it had to be the forefront of everything you do. But I think I want it to be an active part of my life every day. So just staying connected to my my tribe of new peeps. All right. And we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Okay. Lucy, you yes. might have covered this earlier, but what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, definitely that night in the hospital with my dad. It's etched into my memory. Yeah, definite, definite. And when was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking? This time around, probably like my 10th blackout in a row. Uh, and the, yeah, the four day hangover that I thought would never end. That's, uh, that was enough, enough wine for me. <laughs> and in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Received? I guess I feel like I'm sounding like a bit of a broken record here, but the, the find your tribe thing, I think. Yeah. There's there's no there's no need to be lonely in your sobriety these days. Even if you live in the backwoods of you know the middle of nowhere, if you can find somewhere like Cafe Re online, you will never be alone in your sobriety. So find your find your tribe wherever you can. And what parting piece of guidance besides find your tribe? Excellent piece of advice. What parting mm -hmm. piece of advice or guidance can you give the listeners who are thinking about getting sober who have already gotten sober? I think, yeah, maybe going back to, again, what I was saying before um, about just believe, believe in yourself, like you're stronger than you know, that, yeah, sober people, we're not anomalies, uh, we're the same as everyone else who's ever struggled with their drinking, and there's a way out for everyone. So, you know, I proved myself wrong, and, and you can too, so, yeah, believe in yourself. I love it. And yeah. before you depart, Lucy, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. <laughs> um you might be an alcoholic if you factor in an extra hundred pounds for every night out budget because you don't know where in the city you'll wake up and you anticipate being in too much pain to get home any other way that's like 180 bucks 150 dollars yep, i did that more than once yeah. london is a town and the cabs are pricey so. yeah at least we're putting some sort of thought into this stuff though <laughs> well, I know, but you know, you might be an alcoholic if you put that thought in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, or three, three blood, uh, 
Yeah, blood alcohol blood calculator alcohol apps. Tape. Yeah, one of which made a scrap of difference. So. Yeah, exactly. I did the same thing when I first went back to try moderate drinking at an app. Downloaded. It. I was drinking by myself at Old Chicago, and the app was open on my phone. I'm drinking. I'm like, oh, I got this. And then like four drinks later, it's like, ah, oh, this app sucks. This is exactly. stupid. Exactly. Who cares? Yeah. What's your blood alcohol is at that point? Yeah. You know, driving home anyways. It's not going to do a thing. It just Jesus yeah. Christ. So yeah. glad I'm not there. Oh, oh my God! Amen. Deleted those apps. Yeah. A while ago. So, yeah. Lucy, I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, thank you. When I first got sober, I told myself that I'm not going to miss out of any of these events, and I held it as a badge of honor that really not much changed. The only thing changed that I wasn't drinking in these events. I had accountability in place. All my friends knew that I wasn't drinking, and I really never jeopardized my sobriety being in these situations. I think I've been to Vegas seven or eight times sober. I think I've traveled to, I think, six countries sober. I've been to several weddings. As I mentioned earlier, I just went to a bachelor party this last December in Dallas. But I've reached the conclusion that I'm in the wrong room, like I just talked about. And my body first gave me this indication at my fantasy football draft, not this past August, but the year before, so 2017. They're my seven best friends. It's a difficult feeling to navigate to realize this isn't for me anymore no no not the fantasy football stuff i'm definitely still gonna be playing fantasy football but maybe i only show up for saturday which is the day of the draft i don't know if i'm gonna go for all three nights of the future draft and i'm definitely gonna be lobbying no more las vegas in fact this next year we're renting an rv and we're gonna go camping on the coast of california but i do know at this draft my friends are gonna cut loose as life progresses, they're having more kids, their relationships are becoming more complicated, and instead of phasing out of getting shit-faced at these drafts, the opposite is actually happening. I'm not worried that any of them are at risk of falling into alcoholism, but uh, yeah, it's not phasing out. So again, what I can control is, is myself, and I'm realizing that I don't need to be in those situations anymore, and this is not a sacrifice at all. When I attended Peru, the Bozeman Retreat, Dallas, we've got Nashville in February, and other events that I've organized with other sober people, I realized that I'm getting so much more positive energy out of those events. I come back recharged, ready to go. I'm not drained like when I attend a bachelor party. So that's my plan moving forward. Not because I'm walking on eggshells in my sobriety, but my body is telling me we need more. We need more fulfillment out of connections in life, and that's what's going to happen. Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.